or smartphone or some device, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We will be in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We have been in 1 Corinthians now for several months, working our way through it. Uh, Paul preached last week the first sermon out of, of 1 Corinthians 15. We will actually do one more in 15 next week, and then we'll have one final sermon as we look at chapter 16. So we will be done with 1 Corinthians by the end of the month. Um, it's kind of like a commercial, right, for making you want to sign up for childcare coming down the hall. Um, you know, I, I'm grateful as we look at chapter 15 this morning. Um, I, I'm just grateful for the way over our history that we've, we've just kind of looked at Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and worked our way through it. It, it does a few things for us. One, um, if, if your pet sin gets hit in a sermon, it was just the next sermon up, right? Like that it wasn't, okay, someone outed me to the pastor, someone told what was going on, that it's just it's the next passage up and that's dealt with. Um, but it's also, I, I appreciate it because we also just see the sovereign hand of the Lord sometimes in what the sermon passage and text is um, on a given week. And if, if I'm honest, this, this has just not been the easiest week. Um, and not for me personally, but just for a lot of folks around me that I love um, and that I care about, um, that we have, we've just, there's been loss and there's been hurt. Um, and there's been, been difficult life circumstances. And, and, and if you think I'm talking about you, I'm, it probably is, and then a whole bunch more, right? Because there's just been, it seems like a lot of that that has happened just this week. And this morning, we're in a chapter that's going to look at the resurrection, right? And why the resurrection matters. Because often, I think when we look at Jesus, we think about his perfect life, and we're like, yeah, yeah, that was necessary. We needed his perfect life because I'm, I'm a sinner. And since he was perfect and I'm not, okay, that was good. That's, that's in my place. That's beneficial. And we look at the cross, and we think, oh, that, that's beneficial as well. We need that because I don't want to be punished. And so if Jesus, if he went to the cross on my behalf, then that's, that's beneficial for me. And so we look at his life often, and we look at his death often, and we see the role and the impact that it has on our life. And I think sometimes if we're not in the Easter season, we look at the resurrection, and we're like, it's good that Jesus is alive, but what impact does it really have? What effect does it really have that today that he's hearing our songs? That as the book of Acts says, right, like that he is alive and working and moving, and his mission is continuing to go forth. And so this morning, I hope that we are simply reminded of the, the significance of the fact that Jesus is alive today, that the resurrection occurred, and what it's going to, the impact that it'll have on our life. And so if you have your Bible open, let's begin in, in chapter 15 and verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father to, the, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. All right, so Paul is, is, is wrapping up his letter to the church in Corinth. And, and it, you can tell that Paul has a bit of a contentious relationship with the church. He loves them. He spent 18 months there. He knows them. He knows their situations. He knows their issues. But there is a lot of behavioral stuff going on in Corinth. And so through this letter, he has hit on 10 or 11 just kind of, hey, we are supposed to rightly reflect the character of God. And you are going to be the temple of God in Corinth. That we are the temple here in West Texas. We are, the way that we live is reflecting and showing what God is like to a watching world. And so Paul has written with, with firmness, with pastoral care, with, with a mix of kindness and, and just stoutness. of saying there's some things that have to be corrected if we're going to do this rightly. And Paul, um, our Paul, not Paul the Apostle, last week preached that they were denying a bodily future resurrection. They weren't denying Christ's resurrection. They were denying that there would be a future bodily resurrection. And yet, Paul the Apostle is going to tell us that there are implications for the fact that Jesus is alive. And he begins, and he's just going to root this um, in theology. Last week, we, we looked at the Old Testament and the promise that, that the resurrected Christ would come. But this, this week, let's look at how Paul roots this in theology. First and foremost, if we look in verse 20, he uses the word first fruits. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. And this idea of first fruits, if you're familiar with some Old Testament, you may, you may think of like a sacrificial um, system, right? That the first fruits were brought and offered as a sacrifice to God. And the first fruits were like, as they were offered, it was kind of a reminder that the rest of the harvest belonged to God as well. This was kind of like a down payment. And so when you hear the word first fruits, it's maybe helpful to think of the idea of earnest money um, or down payments, just kind of an assurance that I'm giving you this now because something more is coming. There's a harvest coming later. When Carmen and I moved back to Pampa from Yemen, a decade or so ago, we were looking for houses, and when we stumbled upon the house we currently owned, we literally saw the guy like putting the for sale sign in the yard. We were the first persons to look at it, and when we walked through it, um, we were poor, like 23-year-olds, hoping that we were about to have jobs, and Carmen's like, I want this house, and I'm like, we can't afford this house, and I said, so there's no point in even asking them how much we can't afford it. We've already been looking all day. This is nicer than anything we've looked at. And she's like, it wouldn't hurt to ask. I'm like, it will hurt to ask because I'll be offended, right? Like, 
And so she, she just goes, ma'am, you know, how much are you asking? And this sweet woman who had lived there for 50 plus years, you know, kind of pats her on the back and says, well, and she gives this like rock bottom number. And so like my head jerks around like, I heard that. And so I'm like, can I write you a check right now? And she's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, go pull that sign out of the yard. Here's $500. Hold this house for us. We're going to the bank now. Right? Like that's the idea of first fruits, this idea that something has been given to hold something that is even better that's coming. And so the first fruits is God's promise in Christ that our resurrection will follow it. That as Christ is living, as he has beaten sin and Satan and death, and God has raised him from the dead, what he's saying is this is the down payment to let us know our resurrection for those who are in Christ will follow. That it will come as well, that that will be a part of the harvest. And so this is evidence from God himself that he is keeping his promise. Paul says it elsewhere in Ephesians. He says, look, when we receive the Holy Spirit, it's a down payment that God is a promise-keeping God. That he's given us the Spirit to comfort us. Jesus' resurrection is this reminder and this down payment that God keeps his promises, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that we are meant to be with him, and that those who are in Christ will be with him eventually. It's, it's the beginning of God's renewal. That if we go back to Genesis, we remember that we're meant to walk with God for all eternity, to be with him. And what God is doing in Christ's resurrection is the start of this renewal process, this restoration process, that where we're going to end up is with God forever. It's what we're meant for, to know him and to worship him. It, would, it was also used to, if we look at Second Thessalonians, to admit, it, first fruits was a word that was used to talk about the first believers in a geographical area, right? The idea that, that these are the first, but a harvest is coming. These are the first, but more believers are coming. And so Paul wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Listen to what he says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, to the church in Thessalonica, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That they were the first, but they weren't going to be the last. They were the first, but a harvest was coming. More were coming. And so this morning that we would be reminded that Jesus was the first fruit of resurrection. That God was doing something in that, and it's evidence, and it's proof to us this morning that our resurrections will follow, the harvest will follow in that. It's God's pledge to us. If we go on, look at the next verse. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what's going on here is he's saying, look, we're going to compare and contrast Adam and Jesus. And he says, look, Adam was meant to reign and to walk with God. He was given dominion over creation. He had God walking in the midst with him in the garden. And he was meant to like rightly reflect the character of God to a world. And Adam and Eve rebelled. And in the rebellion, they said, we don't trust God. We think you're holding out on us. And it separated things and it broke things. And because of that, we are all rebels by nature. That we are opposed to God. That we are the enemies of God. And it came through our, our first father, through Adam's sin and rebellion, that we are marred 
and marked by that. And so if you are not in Christ, then you are in Adam. And in, 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 if you are in Adam, then death comes for us. Right? That we are, we are opposed to God. We are the enemies of God. And yet, what Paul is saying is, look, we want Jesus to be resurrected. We have to believe this because if through one man came death, through another man comes life. The resurrection of the dead. So it says, just as Adam put upon us this, this curse of death, now Jesus has come to restore and to renew, to make us His, so that we would belong to Him. And so life now comes through Christ. Resurrection comes through Christ. That the second man, the second Adam, is correcting the mistake of the first. So this morning, church, it's a really important reminder for us to know that you stand in one of two groups this morning. That you're either in Adam, and so death marks you, or you're in Christ, and so life marks you. That you're following in the footsteps of one or the other, and to know that we are all at one point in Adam, until rescued by Jesus, until made His, and then we are in Christ. You'll notice what he says Because we know that all are marked by death. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. He says then, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so your your first thought may be like, wait a second. That's like universalism, right? Like all are going to live. Like if all died in Adam, now that means in Christ that all are going to live. We know this is not what Paul is saying. Because if we even go back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 18... Remember what he writes here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it's to those who are being saved the power of God. In Philippians 3, he says, right, like, if I obtain salvation. He's not saying that all are saved or that all will receive life in Christ. We see this even in the following verse. In verse 23. But each in his own order... Christ the firstfruits. Listen, then at Jesus' coming, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so those who will see resurrection are those who are in Christ, who belong to Christ. Listen to how Paul writes about this in Romans 6. Beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Right? That it's in Christ's death That if we are in Christ, if we trust that that is sufficient for us, that God is satisfied with us because of Christ's death on our behalf. 
right? Not through the works of our own hands, not that we could boast, but if Christ, is, if Christ satisfied the wrath of God through his life and his death, so he was then resurrected, right? If Christ isn't resurrected, then God's not satisfied. He's still saying your sin's on you. But in Christ's resurrection, he is saying, I accept the sacrifice. I accept the offering. So for us, then, we either walk in the footsteps of Adam to death, or we walk in the footsteps of Christ to life everlasting, to resurrection. He then goes on to say not just about the first fruits or that Jesus is the better Adam, but he says that, right, that he's Lord of all. He says in verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, right? His resurrection, it initiated something. It started something. It started the resurrection of all things. It started the restoration of all things, I mean. Then Jesus will come. So we are living in the last days, right? Not because of what's going on in the world around us, but because at the cross, the last days were initiated. That it started, that the Spirit has fallen, Right, it's come among us that we can know God and we can say to our neighbor, know God. Because the Spirit has come. And so that happened at the cross and at the resurrection. And what we are waiting for, the bookend of this, will be Jesus splitting the sky. It's his return. It's his coming that will set time at an end. And eternity will continue for us, for those who are in Christ. Look, verse 24, then comes the end when he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Right? This is beautiful and good news that Jesus is reigning until all enemies are squashed, until all are wiped out. And, and his enemies were put on notice at the cross, they were put on notice in his resurrection that he is one. And yet, the Lord is patient, longing for more to come to know him. And so, he is waiting, right? He's receiving additional worshipers, but there will be a day where he will come. He will step into human history again. And time as we know it will end. And the dead in Christ will rise to live forever with him. But what we see here is absolute authority. There is no battle going on here where we're like, I hope Christ pulls it out. Like, he wins. And if Jesus isn't resurrected, then death hasn't been conquered. Right? Like death is our greatest and our final enemy. It's the one that marks our life. It's the one that creates fear in our life. It's the one that creates loss and separation. And so the good news here is that Jesus is putting death to an end. He will put it under his feet, and he will reign and rule over it because God is in absolute authority and absolute control. And all reigns and all rules will come to an end except his. That means all world powers will come to an end except his. That all dictators and all those that, like, the Rome of the world, right, it, it came to an end. That any that would like to raise an angry fist to God will come to an end, and he will be vindicated. And so there is some good news for us this morning as well. If you have faced injustice, if you have been the victim of circumstances, that vindication is coming. 
that Jesus will be shown to be the victor in all of those who have brought injustice in the world, all of those who have gone astray and gone their way, opposed to God, will be brought under his foot, and we will be vindicated. It's key for us here to be reminded that if it apart from Christ, that we would be those that right, would be on the, the, the receiving end of that. That we don't look at them and say, yeah, 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 vindication for you. Right? The angry foot of God stomping upon you because that, that would be our story apart from Christ. But it gives hope and encouragement that God is not missing this, that He has seen it, that He is moving, and that He is working for His glory. Paul quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, and from 8, 6, just talking about that, that everything is under the, the footstool, that He is all in all, that death will be conquered. He then moves into some, just an, a really odd section starting in verse 29, of some arguments here. Because remember, the church in Corinth, there's at least a segment of them that are going, I just don't think the bodily resurrection is going to happen. And so Paul begins to, to bring in some, some interesting arguments, basically looking to make them kind of look foolish. So the first is verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And so what this sounds like um, is that people are, are being baptized on behalf of someone else who's already died so that salvation would come, right? This is, this is a Mormon teaching, and that's what it, what it sounds like. There's over 40 interpretations of these couple of verses. There is no real consensus as to what is going on here. But what we know is that Paul is not talking about salvation in this section. He's talking about resurrection, right? So he, and, and so he says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? So some would say that they're literally being baptized on behalf of those who have already died. Others are saying what he's talking about is that we are dying, right? Like that death is coming for us. And so that we are baptized, even though we know death is coming, because we believe a resurrection is coming as well. So that we're doing something that might look foolish to the world, but we believe that there's a future in Christ. And so the dead and the dying are baptized for a future hope. Others would say um, they're being baptized on behalf of people who believed but didn't have the chance to be baptized. Right? Like there's, there's just dozens of theories here. But ultimately, so you're not going to get clarity, all right? Be okay with that. All right. Okay. But ultimately, what is happening is he is not preaching about salvation. There is no historical or biblical evidence that baptism for the dead was occurring in the first or second century. So instead, Paul is, is almost just saying, he's like, there's some that do it. There's they who do it. And he's not saying whether he likes it or he doesn't. He's just saying it, it's happening. And he's, here's the question, or here's what he's saying. There's some foolishness here. He's like, you say you don't believe in a bodily resurrection. Then why are you baptizing? Like, if you don't believe it's going to happen, right, your, your action and your language don't match up. So you're doing these things that would preclude that you believe in a bodily resurrection. But you say that you don't. This is foolhardy. It's foolish. 
We don't do things, right, if we don't believe in them. The second is this. Look, he says, not only that, but look at verse 20, or sorry, verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, look, it's foolish for you to to say that you're baptizing the dead if you don't believe in resurrection. But he also says, how big of a fool am I if I don't believe in a resurrection? Because I'm living at the cost of my life every day. He's like, everything I do, right, is foolish if the resurrection isn't true, if I don't have hope in that. Listen to the way Paul, he'll write the Corinthians again in 2 Corinthians. This is verse 11, and he just talks about a little bit of what's gone on in his life, okay? He says this, I'm talking like a madman in verse 23 of chapter 11, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, a danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without cold and cold, without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Right? It's like Paul is channeling his inner Dr. Seuss there, right? Like he sees... Like, it was horrible everywhere. <laughs> and, he, and he's basically just saying, like, my life is hard. And if I don't believe in a resurrection, then why would I do this? If there is not a joy and a comfort coming, if my body is not going to be resurrected and raised with the king forever, then I'm going to eat and drink because tomorrow we're dying. He's like, but because there's hope, because there's a future I live in a way that many would call foolish. And I'm actually asking you to do it too. I'm calling you to live in this same way because the resurrection is happening. It is coming. That Jesus is the first fruits of that and ours is the harvest that will come. And we will live forever with our King for those who are in Christ. It's why in 2 Corinthians 4, he can say light and momentary are the trials of this life compared to the surpassing glory that is coming for us. Notice he does not say the stuff you are going through is light and momentary. Some of you are experiencing that even as we speak this morning. It is not light. It is not momentary. It is horrific and it is painful and it leaves scars. But we will be resurrected again. And Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. And he will give hope. And we will be with him forever. And it says the what is coming on our behalf will make what you're experiencing in this life light and momentary. And so if it feels big and forever, how much better is what's coming? 
right? Like the comparison is tremendous. So Paul is saying, look, you say that you don't believe in this, and yet you do things that would call you a fool. I'm telling you, I would be a fool if the resurrection wasn't true. And then he finishes his argument here, and he says this. Verse 33. He quotes from a, uh, a famous play uh, that was written in, in the 200 BCs. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So here's what he's saying. He's like, look, here's why we believe in the resurrection theologically. And here's how we would be fools if we don't. And then this. He says, so bad company ruins good morals. What, what on earth is he talking about here? He's quoting a familiar phrase. It's like quoting Shakespeare now and not even knowing that it's Shakespeare because it's just in common like lingo. And so what he's saying is this. Those of you in the church who are talking about no resurrection, you are corrupting everyone else. You are going to bring ruin to this place because the resurrection matters and not just in some sweet by and by way for implications in life today. And so your bad conversation, your bad company in this is, he's telling the church, don't be deceived. It's possible you could be deceived with this. The resurrection matters and it's real. And it's, it's coming. So don't be deceived by these fools who are saying that it doesn't. Listen to what he says to the church. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Like it has implications for life. Why are you walking around like a zombie? Look at the implications. Look at the effect that it has. Don't go on sinning. Right? We don't eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We live with reckless abandon because we have hope in a resurrection. We have hope in eternity that we have a future in Christ. And he says, I say this to your shame. He's like, because of the lack of resurrection talk, you're living like today's the only thing that matters. And so you are not rightly reflecting the character of God. You are being ignorant. So what I want us to end with is, is we could talk about the implications of the resurrection the rest of the day. We're just going to look at three and I hope in conversation this week with your family, in conversation with friends, in conversation in gospel community, that we can continue to look at this. The resurrection matters because it gives us hope. Right? Again, that's one of those like kind of cliche, of course it does, whatever, move on. But y'all, it gives us hope. It gives us hope for those who have gone on before us. Right? It's why we as the church don't mourn like those in the world, because death doesn't get the final say. It is not the end for those who are in Christ. And so we don't mourn the same. It gives us hope on behalf of those who have gone on before us. It gives us hope ourselves that we don't have to be marked by Adam any longer, that we can be marked by Christ. And so it means that my own mortality, I can look at it differently. I don't have to fear death when I'm in Christ. I belong to him, and death is simply a step to being with him forever. That I'll either face that, or he will split the sky. And so, I've had to do um, several funerals here lately for folks that I didn't know real well. 
So I'm talking to the family, listening to the family, and watching them kind of trace the progression of their family, their loved one's life from being like the caregiver, the one who took care of everyone, the one who did everything, to the one needing care. Man, right? Like that we spend our life thinking about, I'll always be the one doing the things, not the one receiving the things. And yet that day comes for all of us. That when, when I ended up in the hospital, un, un, like, so shockingly, two years ago, I'm, man, I'm super comfortable visiting people in the hospital. Like, that's my domain, right? I know what to do on that side of the hospital bed. But when you're sitting in it, you're like, this is different, right? Like, because you're, you're reminded of our own mortality. And so the resurrection gives us hope that this life may scar us in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. And it's because we have enemy. We have an enemy that's roaring around, roaming, looking to devour us. And we have enemies like death, but death does not get the final say. Jesus does. And so even though your body may be wrecked with, with sin, and it's, or sorry, with, with sickness, Although you may have disease, you may have tragedy, you may have loss in your life, you may have things that's like, how could anyone make it through? We have hope that that doesn't get the final say. Tragedy and sickness and death don't win. Jesus wins. And so we have hope for all eternity that we can live in a sin-laden world and face our own mortality and not fear it because Jesus is coming. And that is good news. Because Jesus is alive. He hears your cries and your groaning and your prayers. It's good news because you can tell someone sin doesn't get the final say in your life for those who trust Jesus. And when unexpected life circumstances and situations happen, we have some understanding of what's going on. Right? It's the last groans of the evil one trying to convince us, hey, just stay in Adam. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. In Christ, hope, victory, vindication. Not, it's not only that we have hope for others and for ourselves. It affects today. It affects the decisions that we make. Because we don't fear death. It's why people go and serve in places like Afghanistan. It's why people work um, in, in Ebola-ridden countries and stay as Christian doctors and nurses and missionaries. Because death doesn't have the final say. If it did, then we would be right to say, i got to live as long as I can and hopefully die on my lazy boy at 95, right? Like, i I got I to wring all I can out of life. But if death doesn't have the final say, if Jesus does, if eternity does, then I can make decisions I can do things on behalf of him that might actually shorten this life. And I have, I'm not a fool. And I haven't lost anything because I'm honoring the one who wins in the end. Paul tells them, right, we have to be careful not to have this idea of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Church, for us it's this. If we're not careful... It's, it's middle-class sensibilities about pleasure and comfort and ease. And so we don't make decisions, right? That, so it would look like making decisions that would look foolish with money because I trust that Jesus is alive. It makes decisions that might look foolish with our home or, or who we let live in our home 
or who, how we spend our time or how we spend our effort, that if, if this is all we get, then it would be right to wring all the good and all the pleasure out of it. But if this is simply a foretaste of what we get forever, then we can be servants. And we can take the things that God has given us and use them to serve and to bless others. That's what Paul has been saying through all of the, the letter to the Corinthians, is love each other, serve each other, care for one another, use the things you have for the benefit of one, of a, one another, because God's worthy of it. He's worthy. And so we don't have to worry about living for our ease and our comfort as much as we want to be obedient to what has God called us to. How has he blessed us in order that we can serve and minister to others? Because Jesus' resurrection is not just proof that we get to be resurrected. It's the power that we need to live a life that reflects his character. To look like fools in our culture. Because we don't have the same, the same standards. Because we don't have the same goals. Because I really just want to make much of Jesus. And that he sometimes is going to call me to do things that just wouldn't make sense otherwise. And so when Paul says, I've been beaten and I've been stoned and I've been hungry and I've had anxiety, that our lives would look more like that. That we have given generously of ourselves and had cost to our own lives and our own families because we realize this doesn't have the final say. That this 65, 85, however many years we get, it's not the end. Lastly and finally is this. The resurrection matters because we have a king to worship. Right? Like the, the, this morning as you sing to him, he hears it. Right? Like do, do, we, do we miss that sometimes? Right? Like that as we sing, he's going, I hear you and I love you. You are my adopted son. You are my adopted daughter. I receive the praise and the glory that you are that you're pouring out to me, right? It's how much different it is to see and to look face to face, to know. This morning, the Spirit is moving among us, and Jesus is alive and sitting on His throne, able to receive it, that He has given us evidence, and He has given us hope, and He says, so trust me, follow me, that where I'm taking you is back to the Father forever, that we would long for those things. And that we would fight for our lives to rightly reflect his name and his glory. That we would look like a resurrected people. So we're going to finish chapter 15 next week. We're going to talk about the implications in GC of of what this looks like. Um, When we don't face stonings and beatings right now. But how do we live in a culture that would say, man, those are resurrected people. They're not putting all their eggs in 70 good years of good health. Church, the, the band is, is going to come back up in just a moment. In the meantime, um, we're just going to invite you to, to kind of sit and let the Spirit minister to you. Um, if there's something that you feel like you need to confess, that you would do that. If there's something the Spirit is wrestling in you right now, that, that you would be able to just meditate and consider for just a moment what the Lord is saying to us from 1 Corinthians 15. And then the band will come up. Um, And we will sing to our King who will receive that praise this morning. There will be men and women in the back of the room if you need someone to talk to or pray with. Um, So let me pray for us, and we will respond. Jesus, we, 
we want to say thank you that you're alive. And because you're alive, we can live differently. And because you're alive this morning that you can convict and you can comfort and you can encourage. Father, that that's not in the hands of those who preach, in the hands of those who lead gospel communities. God, it's in yours. That your spirit is able to move in the depths and in the places of our heart. Father, thank you that you say it's okay to grieve, to mourn, to feel emotion. And yet this morning, would we let truth triumph over our emotions that you win and that you are for us and that you are with us. Father, would we live as a people who do not fear death because we know resurrection is coming. Father, would we live as people who would make decisions not based on the culture or the norms of folks in our social class, but on the cross. Jesus, we ask you to speak this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.